Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, if you would, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles in the back there by the AV booth. That is our gift to you. Or if you'd like a second Bible, um, I, I preach out of the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. That's our gift to you. Uh, so make sure you take that home. And as you, as you turn to Matthew chapter 5, let me do a review here. We have spent the last month in Matthew's gospel specifically studying the Beatitudes within the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus has declared a certain type of supernatural holiness over our lives with these Beatitudes. He says, blessed or happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed or happy are those who mourn their sin. Happy or blessed those who are humble. And last Sunday, we said that the fourth beatitude is, is like a pillar. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We could say that the fourth beatitude is like a dam. The first three beatitudes, they, they flow into it. And then the, the last three, they flow out of it because of our spiritual hunger and our spiritual thirst for God's righteousness. Um, God's righteousness, right? There's a hunger and thirst. There's a desperation to us knowing who God is. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, how Jesus first deals with our hearts in this sermon and then our hands. Why so much emphasis on our hearts? Well, we have to be before we can do. Uh, moral character is Jesus' primary focus here in the Beatitudes, and uh, the religious culture that Jesus lived in, in the first century, they were, they were obsessed with outward appearances, kind of like us, you know, we, we are too, but the significant difference between them and us is that they were obsessed with how they look spiritually. We're obsessed with how we look physically. Um, regardless, though, Jesus knows that because of the depravity of our hearts, uh, along with the remaining sin in our lives, he must first address our hearts and then our mind. Jesus knows that to radically change our outward behavior, he's got to start with how we think, right? We got our head, our heart, and then our hands. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 12:1, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. That's what the Beatitudes are doing here. They're transforming us. How are they doing that? Through the renewing of our mind, so that you may discern what is the good, the please, and the perfect will of Almighty God. So if we've gone through the difficult process of taking these Beatitudes pretty seriously over the past month, 
we should start noticing something. We should start noticing that my thinking is changing along with my attitude. Head, heart, hands. It's, a, it's our total being. And that's what Jesus is focused on here. Only when our head and our heart, when they align with God's will here, can we truly do the work of God's kingdom. So when God has our head and our hearts, we can, he, he then has our hands. It doesn't work the other way around. He doesn't start with our hands. He starts with our hearts in the, in the way that we think. So Jesus first deals with who we are. He did that through the first four Beatitudes. And now he's going to show us the outward manifestations from those particular Beatitudes. So in other words, the first four Beatitudes are the, uh, these next four Beatitudes, excuse me, these next four are the fruit that is produced in our lives as a direct result of the first three. Now, we're also going to learn a surprising theological concept about sin and God's mercy today. What's the surprise? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 5 to give us the full context of this passage here. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain And after he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And this is the word for River Bible Church this morning. Thank you guys. Please have a seat. All right, let's dive in here to verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed in the Greek there is makarios. It literally means happy. Our definition of happiness, though, is different than God. So once again, we must adjust our our happiness to center. God's word is center. So whether we're we're to the right of that or to the left of it, we've we've got to adjust our our definition of happiness, our worldview of what God says brings us joy. Back to verse 7, blessed are thee. Blessed are thee. Jesus points to a specific group of people. Who are they? Blessed are the merciful. These people are merciful. Merciful in the Greek, eliamon. Greek verb there is eliao, and it literally means to have mercy. To have mercy. Do you have mercy? What's it look like to have mercy? Well, let's start with some definitions here. And then what we'll do is we'll exposit this text using some narratives throughout the the rest of the scripture. So a very basic definition of mercy is mercy helps the helpless. Mercy helps the helpless. A, A more thorough definition is a merciful person shows leniency, He shows compassion, 
offers forgiveness, especially towards someone who has offended them. A merciful person shows leniency and compassion. He offers forgiveness, especially towards someone who has offended them. So the best way to understand mercy is this, and that brings us to key point number one. Mercy is compassion in action. Mercy is compassion in action. Mercy involves caring about people. It's being sympathetic. It's, it's having an understanding and then doing what you can to alleviate the pain. We have a, a third definition of, of mercy. Mercy is a big topic, right? The third definition of mercy, it deals with justice. Justice. Uh, mercy is defined from a judicial sense that uh, God is withholding the punishment that is due. God withholds the punishment that is due. So in Scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, mercy is perfectly demonstrated by God when He temporarily withholds justice for His people who deserve punishment. Uh, we see God's compassion, we see God's pity and love towards this rebellious nation called Israel. And if you think about it, the entire sacrificial system was based primarily on God's mercy. The lambs that were slain, they were temporarily a temporary, a temporary covering for our sin. That was until the Lamb of God arrived and, and shed His blood, which became the final and the perfect sacrifice for us. I want you to think about God's patience within His mercy. If, if you were God, all right, and you were dealing with these rebellious Israelites... How thick would your Old Testament be? Would it be about this thick? Right? That's a lot, especially compared to the New Testament. Would it be that thick? I'm, guess, I'm guessing most of us, though, would have lost our patience, and we would have implemented total uh, and absolute justice around Genesis 7 <laughs> with the flood. So in other words, if it were up to us, the Old Testament would be about seven chapters long. But not God. Not God, guys. God, he, he's always saved a remnant of people. He did that starting with Noah's Ark. Why would he do that? He did it because of God's, his own character. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. God is love. And God shows his love through uh, a special Old Testament Hebrew term, it's called hesed. Hesed is difficult to really define in English. There's a, there's a lot going into hesed, but, but let's give this a shot here. Hesed is defined as a love where mercy, kindness, and compassion, where all, all of those things are demonstrated. The, the biggest concept, the biggest idea is this, is it's steadfast love. Hesed is steadfast love. God's steadfastness, not ours. He loves us because he chooses to love us. Hesed is a loyal love. It's a love that never fails. It's a love that takes action when it needs to. It's a love that's related to the promises of God. God promises these things, and he's going to fulfill those promises through his love for us. And the reason that God didn't implement total justice during the flood 
is because of that. He's made those promises, right? We say that he has a covenant faithfulness. He's made this promise. Um, he is faithful to his people. And it's not just a love. It's a merciful love. He takes pity on us. Um, we see God's steadfast love, his, his hesed, his mercy throughout the entire Old Testament. Let me give you some examples here. God's mercy led Abraham to rescue his nephew Lot from being killed in Genesis 14. Remember Lot? Lot was one of those guys, man. He just kind of rode on the coattails of, of Abraham. He was proud. He was a know-it-all. And Abraham was so gracious to this man, his nephew. Uh, there was a family feud that came up. And they didn't have enough land because they had so much, uh, they had so much livestock. And Abraham said, look, Lot, you choose which way you want to go. It's yours. He didn't have to do that. Well, Lot chose what looked best in his eyes. He didn't really care too much for Abraham's immediate family. And yet, God's mercy flows through Abe sometime later when, when Abraham had to go rescue Lot because Lot was captured by a rebel army. They were getting ready to kill him. Abraham goes and he saves his life. That's mercy. God's mercy allowed Joseph to forgive his brothers for wanting to kill him and sell him into slavery. How merciful would you be to your brothers if they threw you in a pit, sold you into slavery? God's mercy prompted Moses to ask Yahweh to remove leprosy from his sister Miriam. Remember this? Miriam was busy running her mouth about Moses. She's talking all kind of smack. God says, nah, uh uh, you're not going to get away with that, Miriam. He strikes her with leprosy, and then Moses steps in and begs for her life. See, it was God's mercy that, that Moses did that. It was also God's mercy that compelled David to spare the life of King Saul. Mercy is so important to God, he commands the Israelites to be merciful to one another. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Micah 6, 8 says this, what does the Lord require of you? If you're chosen by God, what does the Lord require? You are required to do justly or, or do justice. You are to love mercy. You are to love being compassionate to people. And you are to walk humbly with your God. God also teaches us to be merciful throughout the Proverbs. Proverbs 14.21, 11.17, 28.27, 28.13, on and on and on. It's all about mercy. Now here's something very interesting because according to Scripture, God's mercy and His compassion, like the gift of salvation, they cannot be earned. Mercy cannot be earned. It can only be received from God. So the source of mercy is God himself. In fact, God gives mercy to whomever he wants and according to his prerogative. Let me show you an example here. During the Exodus, Moses asked God to show him his glory. He says, God, show me your glory. God says, okay, I'll show you a little bit of my glory. If I show you everything, your head will explode. So we can't have that. So go hide in a cave here. I'm going to pass by. And you're going to see just a fraction of my goodness and my holiness and my glory and my patience. You're going to see all of this. Exodus 33, 19, God says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, Moses. And I will proclaim the name, the Lord. The Lord there is Yahweh. I will proclaim Yahweh before you. And here it is. 
I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It is a gift from God, his mercy. The Apostle Paul recounts the same story in in Romans 19. He says, it doesn't depend on human will or effort. In other words, you can't drum this up by yourself. It depends on God who shows mercy. So here's the deal. Even though God is the one who gives mercy, he's not stingy with it. Let me give you a few more examples. God, he grants mercy to Israel after the nation has committed spiritual adultery. So God divorced Israel in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. And it's through the prophet Hosea that God forgives, forgives them by offering mercy. Look at this. Hosea 2.19. This is, this is so beautiful. He says, I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love. Circle that word love there. That's hesed and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. The prophet Joel, he pleads with the nation to repent um, so that they can receive God's mercy. Look at this, Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Joel says, look guys, even now. He says, this is the Lord's declaration. I'm proclaiming this to you from God himself. God says, turn to me with all of your heart. Fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. There's that word hesed. And he relents from sending disaster. In other words, the Lord doesn't want to bring justice on you guys. God offers his mercy, his compassion, but we must repent from our sins to receive that mercy. We also learn about God's mercy and compassion in a surprising story of Jonah. God tells Jonah to go and preach to a city called Nineveh. And Jonah says, "Mm, nah, I don't don't want to do that. And he jumps in a boat. He literally goes the other way. There's a big storm out in the middle of the sea. Everybody's about to die. Jonah confesses this whole thing is his fault. And he basically walks the plank. Jonah doesn't drown, even though he should, for ignoring and rebelling the one true living God. Jonah lives through this sin. God saves him by a whale of all things. Um, But Jonah's still mad. He's still mad. He doesn't want to preach the good news to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh is kind of like Sedona. It's all wonky in Sedona, isn't it? He finally preaches in... I was going to say he finally preaches in Sedona. In Nineveh... God saves the city. God saves millions of people by his mercy. Now, any normal preacher would be ecstatic with the great salvific work of the Lord there. This is where we pick up the narrative in Jonah 4.1. Jonah was greatly displeased. He's mad. He's furious. Look at that word there. He's furious about God's mercy being extended to Nineveh. He prayed to the Lord. I think this is really not so much a prayer. This is more of a rant. Listen to him. He says, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own 
my own country. And that, that's, why I, that's why I fled. That's why I went to Tarshish in the first place. Listen to this. He said, I knew, I knew that you are gracious and you are compassionate. You are slow to anger. You're abounding in faithful love. Hesed. You're the one who relents from sending disaster. So Jonah knew the same thing about God as Joel did. Jonah is angry because God showed mercy to a group of people he despises. <laughs> Needless to say, Jonah's a preacher with a bad attitude, right? Jonah is an awful example of someone who is more than willing to receive God's mercy, but not give that same mercy away in his own life. We see God's mercy and compassion firsthand when we fast forward to the New Testament now. Um, obviously, mercy is demonstrated in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few examples here. Matthew 15, 20, 15 22. Uh, This is amazing. Just then, a, a Canaanite woman. All right, this woman is not a Jew. She's a Canaanite. She worships idols. She's a pagan. She came into the region, and she kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. She kept saying this over and over. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Now, the apostles, they wanted, they wanted to get rid of her, not Jesus. This, somehow, some, some way, this pagan woman heard the previous stories about Jesus and his mercy, um, and she begged him, to show her just a, a part of that, just a part. And Jesus did. Jesus healed her daughter. Jesus also had mercy on the poor, the blind, the crippled, the widows, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, every kind of sinner, just like us. Praise God. Amen. Just like us. And we see examples of mercy when, when Jesus, this, this blows me away. We see these examples of mercy when Jesus is on, he's hanging on a cross for six hours, becoming our substitute for sin as the Lamb of God. And in John 19, 26, Jesus says this. He says, uh, woman, here's your son. So he looks at his, at his mother and he says, woman, here's your son. He said to the disciple, here's your mother. And from that hour... That disciple, John, took Jesus' mother in to be his own. Now, it's, it's incomprehensible for me to think that Jesus is hanging from this, this Roman cross, and he's gasping for every breath that he can get, and he's concerned about his mother's welfare. Jesus even spoke words of mercy to the men who executed him. He said, he said Father, forgive them. He's being executed. And he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing. Jesus said to this, the thief on the cross, he says, truly, I tell you, today you're going to be with me in paradise. We also see the Lord's mercy in Stephen's life as he's being murdered by the Jews in Acts chapter 7. Stephen kneels down, he cries out with a loud voice, he says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. So as we look at those things, mercy is it's a supernatural gift. 
In the first century, mercy was not a virtue that um, you gave to other people outside of your family or even your, your close friends. So in other words, you showed mercy to those who typically showed mercy to you. Very few people went out of their way to show mercy or compassion to someone they didn't know. This is why we see the religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this is why they're so harsh. They are merciless. We know that the religious leaders were proud and self-righteous and, and judgmental, but really they're anti-mercy. As a general rule, they would only talk to other Pharisees and Sadducees. And that's what cold, hard religion does to people. It, it hardens us. It doesn't soften. The Romans, they, this is amazing, they called mercy the disease of the soul. They called mercy a disease. Let that sink in for a second. In their opinion, mercy and compassion were the greatest signs of weakness. Mercy was a sign that you didn't have what it takes to be a man, especially a, a real Roman man. The Romans had four foundational virtues. They valued wisdom and justice and self-discipline and courage. Above all, they glorified in this absolute type of power. Obviously, mercy doesn't make the list. It doesn't even come close to making that list. So this is the background that Jesus is in of these Jewish religious and these Roman political uh, of the culture that the Jews are, are living in, Jesus shows up, and in verse 7, back to verse 7, Jesus is preaching. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they're going to be shown mercy. Mercy is not a part of the disciples' vocabulary. The, the, the disciples may have even laughed when he, when he said this. Blessed are the merciful, for they... For they will be shown mercy. Notice that emphatic pronoun there, autos. It's they. It indicates that only those who are merciful, they qualify to receive this mercy. So the question is, okay, shown mercy whom, by whom? Who's showing the mercy here? Is Jesus saying that those same people that we're going to be merciful to, are they going to return that and show mercy to us? Is that what Jesus is saying? I mean, Jesus is the embodiment of mercy, yet the religious Jews and the Roman government murdered him. So it's not other people. The answer is God. We show mercy to other people, and it's God who gives mercy to us. Uh, we really kind of see a circular blessing in this beatitude. Number one, God gives, he gives us mercy, Number two, we now have the capacity to give that mercy away. And three, God now gives us more mercy. Now, we, we do have an interesting dichotomy of mercy versus someone who is merciless. We could say good versus evil in this parable called the Good Samaritan. Let's take a look at it. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him, they beat him, and then he fled. He left this man half dead. 
But, verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the road. So that's good news. We, 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 got, a, we got a priest walking down the road. A, a priest is expected to be a, a righteous man just overflowing with God's compassion. He knew that God's law commanded him to be merciful to strangers. In fact, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34, emphasizes this point of compassion. The priest is supposed to love a stranger as himself. So the priest sees this man, he knows what, what God commands him to do, and then not only that, I mean, he should want to help out, out, of, the, out of the compassion that God has given him. He should be overflowing with compassion to help another person. That, that's why he got into the priesthood, is to help people. Let's take a look, verse 31. So when the priest saw him, he passed by the other side. That's not good. That was not supposed to happen. Verse 32, in the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him. So this is good news too. A Levite, you know, this guy has a second chance. A Levite is someone who assists the priest. So he too should be overflowing with God's compassion. He is a chosen man of God. Back to verse 32, but he passed by the other side. All right, this is not good. This man is having a very bad day. He's 0 for 2. He's on his deathbed. Verse 33. But, but a Samaritan on his journey came, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured olive oil and wine. He took care of him. He, he, put, on him his own, he put him on his own animal. He brought him to, uh, to an end, some kind of hotel, and, and he took care of him. So it's the Samaritan, someone who's not included in the chosen race of Israel that has God's compassion. The next day in verse 35, the Samaritan took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, you take care of them. I, I will pay you. I will take care of this. And when I come back from my trip, I'm going to reimburse you for everything. Amazing. Now, I think it is a good time here to pause for a second and mention that neither this parable nor this beatitude implies that mercy provides salvation. It doesn't provide salvation. So in other words, your compassion doesn't, it doesn't give you a ticket to heaven. Your good works don't do that. We, we do not earn eternal life by being merciful. We don't earn salvation by feeding the poor or going on a mission trip, or building, building houses, or digging wells. That's a false belief system. It's a false belief system that says God will judge you, and really your good deeds, and what he's going to do, he's going to compare them. He's going to put them on a scale. That's not what God does. That's a very bad spiritual plan, so please don't believe that. Scripture says that God judges our hearts. And he does that when, when we are, are saved from our sins by confessing our sins. Uh, when we proclaim that Jesus is Lord and we believe that God resurrected him from the grave. Jesus walked out of his own grave. And whenever somebody walks out of their own grave for being dead for three days, it's just my opinion, we should probably listen to him. <laughs> Salvation comes one way, and that is through Christ alone by faith alone. So if you are truly saved, and time always tells, 
you will be merciful. That's one of the many lessons with the Good Samaritan. That man was saved. The priest and the Levite, they were both either having a very bad day, which is possible, or they're not saved. Regardless, an unredeemed man cannot offer God's mercy. Someone who is saved cannot offer God's mercy. He can, now, he can offer his own definition of mercy. He can do that. But that's not, that's not true, selfless, eternal mercy, the same kind of mercy that, that God offers us. We see this truth played out in the parable of the unforgiving servant. Let me show this to you. This is, this is amazing. Matthew 18, 21. Peter approached him and asked, he said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or my sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Jesus says, I tell you, not as many as seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, for all you math guys, this is not a parable about math, all right? It's, a, it's, it's about forgiveness. This is hyperbole. Jesus is not saying that once you get to 490, you don't have to forgive anymore. He's not saying that. Forgiveness is not about keeping score. This is not a good time to use your bookkeeping skills with forgiveness, all right? And the reason for that is because now think about this in all seriousness. We have sinned a whole lot more than 490 times against the Lord Jesus. So we don't want to be counting. Verse 23, Jesus says, For this reason the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle the accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents. So just think a gazillion dollars, all right? Since this man did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children, everything, everything that this man owns, is, is to be sold and to pay the debt. That's not good. His whole family are now slaves. When this man heard this, verse 26, the servant fell face down. And he, he said, if, you, if you're patient with me, I, I will pay you everything. Verse 27, the master of that servant had compassion on him. He, rele he, he released him, and then he also forgave the loan. The, the master is so merciful, he didn't just forgive him. He, he forgave the entire debt. Now, you would think that this guy leaving the courthouse, this would be one of his best days ever. But what's he do? In verse 28, that servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. This guy owes him like 30 bucks. He grabbed him. He starts to choke him. And he says, pay me what you owe. So let's pause for a second. Is anger and rage and unforgiveness, along with physical assault here, is, is that what the master, his master had in mind after he forgave him? Verse 29, at this, his fellow servant fell down, began, uh, began begging him, and he says this. He says, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. The fellow servant said the same exact thing verbatim that he just said to his master. Verse 30, but he wasn't willing. 
This is tragic. He wasn't willing. This man is not merciful. He is merciless. Instead, he went and threw this guy in the prison until he could pay what was owed. So the question is, all right, hang on. How can one man possibly have all of this debt forgiven that he could never pay back in his entire lifetime? And yet, the same man cannot forgive someone else who owes him 30 bucks. How is that possible? How can he remain unchanged and merciless, especially after the gift of mercy that was just given to him? Does that make any sense to anybody? Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed. They went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said, you wicked servant. That's not good. He says, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. You begged me. Shouldn't you also, also have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you? Answer is pretty obvious here. It's a rhetorical question. And for whatever reason, this man, he just wasn't, he wasn't converted by God's mercy. The master calls him wicked. Wicked people do wicked things, right? He's acting like the world because he's of the world. He's willing to receive God's mercy for himself, but he's unwilling to extend that same mercy to someone else. And yet Jesus is teaching us today through this beatitude, and it brings us to key point number two. Mercy is both a gift to us and a requirement from us. Mercy is both a gift to us and a requirement from us. Look at the consequences when we don't share the same mercy that God has given to us. Verse 34, because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. Guys, it doesn't get any more severe than this. So let me ask you an obvious question here. How does a man who is financially ruined... He's, in, he's now in jail, and now he's being tortured. How does he have the ability to pay that debt? He doesn't. He can't. You can't pay your sin debt while being tortured for your sin debt. Dear friends, th this parable gives us a picture of how and why hell is eternal. We can never pay our sin debt. And if that's not a big enough dose of reality, look at this, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless, so we have a condition here, right? Unless you forgive, unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. See what Jesus did there? He ties mercy to forgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness are two characteristics that just, they must overflow out of a Christian's life. More on that here in a second. I did want to get to this theological issue before we close. Um, there's an amazing 
theological concept between mercy and sin. Now, we've already discussed that mercy is a part of God's character, right? Let's dive a little bit deeper with that because God has, has two types of characters. He has what's called an absolute character and a relative character or a relational uh, attribute. So his absolute attributes, they include love, truth, and holiness. These characteristics, they are part of God's nature from eternity past. He's always had these things. So in other words, God has had these absolute characteristics, these things that make God complete and whole and holy before he created the world. But his relative, his relational characteristics like mercy and grace and justice, they were not known until after he created the world. God is perfectly holy. So think about this with me. God the Father, he doesn't need to offer God the Son mercy. God the Son doesn't need to offer the Holy Spirit grace. The Holy Spirit doesn't need to offer God the Father justice. So here's the the, the surprising thing about mercy is that the only way that we as human beings would ever be able to experience mercy is when his mercy is offered to us. And mercy couldn't be offered until it was needed. So the question is, when did humanity need God's mercy? When, When did we need it? We needed it after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, correct? Mercy, justice, grace are only needed when sin is involved. It's only when Adam and Eve sinned that God's love was extended to us in the forms of mercy and grace and justice. Why? Because sin broke that relationship between Adam and God. A broken relationship will never happen within the Trinity. God never asked for forgiveness. He's holy. He's perfect. He's good. And dear friends, mercy is one of those relational attributes that we can only recognize through sin. What does that mean? It means, wow, it means that God's plan from the very beginning was to reveal himself through redemption. From the very beginning, God's plan was the cross That kind of theological truth will have you run into the arms of your Savior time and time again. I pray that it does. And that brings us to the cross, doesn't it? This this whole thing is about the cross. Because if if the mercy that God gave to us, where where the mercy of forgiving our sins through Christ, if that was the only thing that God gave us through mercy... That would be enough, wouldn't it? If that was the only merciful act by God, it was the cross, that would be enough. And yet God promises that his mercies are new every morning. Lamentations 3.22, because of the Lord's faithful love, there's that word hesed again, his faithful love, we don't perish for his mercies are, they never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, not ours, 
We struggle with being faithful. It's God's faithfulness. God's mercies should make us the most compassionate people on the face of the planet. I mean, think about it. What don't you have that God didn't give to you? Without mercy, you wouldn't be able to take your next breath. It's only because of God's mercy that you've got the clothes on your back and food in the fridge and a roof over your head. It's only by God's mercy that you have the talents and the skills and the intellect that has gotten where you are this morning. The gift of mercy is why grumbling and complaining, those things are so offensive to God. Why? Because he's, he's already given you everything. And it's a reminder for us to repent from our selfishness this morning. If you hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, if you seek him first, you will be merciful. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, this is a slow, life-changing process that goes along with the, the rest of our sanctification. Let me ask you this. Jesus tied mercy and forgiveness together. Is there someone in your life that you refuse to forgive? Do you refuse to forgive someone in particular? Once again, forgiveness is not about math, but it is about repetition. Once again, if you're counting to 490, your heart is not right. How would you feel if Jesus did that to you? If he counted all the sin in one day and he gets to 491 and he says, Dustin, mm, too bad. He says, tough. No, God is merciful. Something else to think about is how quickly do you forgive? How quickly do you forgive? See, there's a danger in waiting to forgive people because the longer that you take to forgive someone, the more time that root of bitterness takes hold of your life. I have a pastor friend of mine who, who compares old age with wine he says that the older that we get, the more bitter or the more sweet we become. And forgiveness has a, a lot to do with that fermenting process in our lives. Because if, we are, if we're bitter, if we lack forgiveness in our life, it, it destroys everything. It destroys all the relationships around us, and it also destroys our physical body. Unforgiveness is a big deal. That's why Jesus ties that to mercy. Lastly, the, the most merciful thing that you will ever do is be a witness for Christ by sharing the gospel. Now, I'm not talking about the social gospel. Uh, I'm not talking about feeding, feeding physical food here, building homes, making yourself feel good in, in some other way. Mercy involves sharing God's truth about salvation. All those other things are great things to do. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that. But if you're a Christian, if you're part of the church, your primary responsibility is to share what you just learned today with someone this week. That's why we teach verse by verse so that you can share Jesus day by day. 
And dear friends, when you, when you share Jesus day by day, God gives you that moment to, to share a scriptural truth. It's amazing to me that how he works in us in spite of us. So when you hear a, a spiritual conversation, when you hear somebody cry out for help, dive head, head first into that conversation. Let me encourage you in that. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate a baptism. And it is a joy, and it is an honor, and it is, it's just one of those things to where we see the new life here in the Verde Valley. So I'm going to pray, and then the band uh, is going to come up. Guys, why don't you come up right now? And um, we're going to sing one last worship song, and as we sing that last song. We're going to get ready for John's baptism here. So Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy today. Thank you for your compassion in our lives. Thank you for withholding the justice that we deserve. And Lord God, may we take away from here today that we are not to withhold just your mercy, that we are to give it away. And I pray that we do it this week. I pray that when you give us this, the, 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 uh, the opportunity, we, we run into this God intersection that someone is crying out for help, that we would share the good news of the gospel. Maybe share what Jesus has done in our own life and to give them the truth that's just wrapped up in grace. I pray for divine disruptions to our schedule as well. I pray for those of us who are witnessing and, and, Lord, we're planting and we're watering and we're planting and we're watering all this seed. Lord, we pray for new life. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. and amen.